Let's open up our Bibles. We've got to get going. That was a lot of announcements. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. If you need a Bible, these uh, handsome gentlemen are going to bring one to you. Raise your hand. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke is kind of the order in the New Testament, and we are in chapter 8. We're going to read verses 4 through 15. It's um, perhaps familiar to, to many of us, the parable of the sower and the seed, although we will not be dealing with it all this morning. Let me read it and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Verse 4, when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. So that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Let's pray. God, just praying in the back there with some of the guys before the service. Just remembering that you know your sheep. And your sheep hear your voice. We don't know exactly how it happens. We can't fully explain it. But through the words of Scripture and when the gospel is preached and as we open our Bibles, we hear the voice of God. Our hearts are opened, our ears are opened, and you address us. You convict us of sin and then you convince us of your love in spite of our sin and your ability to overcome our sin. 
You release us from condemnation. And as we sang, you, you break our chains. You mend our broken hearts. God, I pray that in this room, your sheep would hear your voice. As we open up this, your word. Jesus name. Amen. Um, If you looked carefully at this text. And listened to all that Jesus had to say. um, I think you would notice that the end game of his instruction here. Is your fruit. Is you bearing fruit in your life? Verse 15. And it's important, I think, that we see that. Um, In particular, it's important that we understand that Jesus has good designs for yours in my life. Um, Megan and I, we, uh, well, and the kids, I should say. Although when little kids help, right? It's almost like, you know what I mean? But we, we <laughs> they hinder more than they help. But they, they were there. We put in a garden, right? In, uh, in the spring. And now in the summer, we've kind of been enjoying the harvest of this. And finally, about a week or two ago, uh, our cantaloupes got big enough to start cutting off the vine, right? And I kid you not. These things, I, I, I cut into one, took a bite. I was like, man, this is the best cantaloupe I've ever had in my life. We're talking about, you know, that golden orange color, sweeter than candy, just juice like dripping down my face. And the reason why I share this with you is because that's the sort of thing that Jesus has... Uh, uh, it, He's desiring, he's aiming for in your life. That's fruit. That's what fruit is. You know, when I'm feeding my little son Levi, what's the last thing I give him? Fruit. Because that's the one thing he really wants. It's sweet, it's good, it's delightful, it's pleasurable. So I'll give him the green beans and the, and the rice cereal and all this stuff first, because I know I won't have any trouble giving him the fruit. It's delightful, it's pleasing, and When we think about Jesus and what he wants to do with our lives, I wonder if that's the way we think of it or not. A lot of times we think that when Jesus walks into the room, like the music stops, everything gets somber, clouds come overhead, and he's kind of the party killer. That's not the way it is at all. His desire is to make you, I mean, just Explode with life and love and joy. Fruit. That's the goal of, 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 of all we're, we're, we're after here. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, I should say that in a way we live in a culture that's actually obsessed uh, with its own version of fruitfulness. Um, perhaps to help you see this, I just need to tweak the word a little bit. Instead of fruitfulness, let's just call it productivity. Productivity. Anybody go on the iTunes uh, app store and realize that productivity has its own category. I know it's there because 
I'm obsessed with it along with everybody else. The same, you know, ever constant iterations of the same basic things, and yet people are still buying it, looking for the next, looking for the latest, because we're in some ways obsessed with producing fruit, with being productive. But I think Jesus will say, and this is going to get us closer to what we're after this morning, He would say that even in our obsession with bearing fruit, producing fruit, being productive, we actually know very little about it. We tend to think when we make it our aim to be fruitful, it means I better get off the couch, I better get going. We think of our own activity. We think of our role in the matter and what we must do. So we kind of analyze our roles. We establish our goals. We we, we come up with our action plans. and, And this is how we think we will be fruitful. We will be productive. But then Jesus in our text is saying, if you want the kind of fruit that lasts, the kind of fruit that's sweet, the kind of fruit that I want in your life, if you want real abiding fruit, not just the hamster in a wheel, I'm getting stuff done kind of fruit. If you want that, you actually don't begin with activity. You begin counter to all your intuitions with what we could call inactivity, namely with listening, with listening, not listening to Fox News or talk radio or Oprah or whoever your favorite little you know, person might be, teacher, instructor, pundit might be, listening to God, listening to his words. If we want to be fruitful, we start with listening. I wonder if you notice this there in Jesus' interpretation of the parable in verses 15 or 11 through 15. Every soil type is hearing the word. Every one of them is hearing the word, but only one is truly hearing it in such a way that it's being taken in and truly listened to, received. Only one is hearing it in such a way that it actually bears fruit in the life. And this is why, if you drop your eyes down to verse 18, which was a little bit outside the extent of the text I gave us for this morning, Jesus cuts straight to the point and says this, Take care then how you hear. Because everything hangs on that. How you hear the word of God, if you truly hear it or not, that's what will determine whether you are fruitful or not. So take care then how you hear. There is uh, one massive problem in all of this, especially if you know your Bibles, um, According to the scriptures, I can't hear. Spiritually, my heart, dead. My ears, deaf. 
I can't discern the voice of God from the voice of my mom. I don't hear it. I don't come to God with an honest and good heart. Verse 15, like that soil. Who has the honest and good heart? I don't come to God with that kind of heart by nature. I come to God with the heart Jeremiah talks about. The heart that is deceptive above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. The word for desperately sick there, anash, in the Hebrew means incurable. Like, there's just not going to be some medicine that you can give me that's going to take care of this heart problem that I have. So, Nick Weber, along with the rest of fallen humanity, suffers from what we may call severe hearing loss. I mean, God is talking everywhere But I hear nothing. Creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God, but I hear nothing. The scriptures are telling me of his his will, his ways, his works, but I hear nothing. Just lips moving, no sound coming out at all. That's a big problem if... This whole entire thing hinges upon my hearing of the word. (laughs) How does this fit into the parable? Well, it does, and and this is really what we're going to deal with this morning. I'm not going to deal with the whole parable right now. As I said, I just want to focus on this issue of listening, of hearing, the problem with my ears, how it gets right. This is kind of the fundamental issue. The weeks to come, or maybe a week or two, uh, we'll look at kind of our responsibility in the matter and the stuff that gets in, like the thorns and the cares of the world and the superficial nature of our faith and how we can cultivate uh, this sort of soil in our hearts. But fundamentally, these ears are deaf. I need help. What do we do? So we're going to see uh, this morning, I'm going to kind of back into this discussion by looking at two things in particular. First, the purpose of parables. And then second, the gift of grace. The purpose of parables and the gift of grace. First, the purpose of parables. Now, as the crowds, if you notice there in verse 4, as the crowds now are gathering in greater number around Christ. That's significant detail. We find that he will actually begin to speak more and more, perhaps even exclusively, Matthew would tell us, in parables. So more and more people are coming. Jesus is speaking more and more in parables to them. Before we can ask and answer why, why is that the case? We need to make sure we know what parables even are. So, Let me try to put a definition on it for you. In fact, I'm not trying to put a definition on it for you. This is the definition in the standard uh, Greek lexicon for the word parable. 
It's defined this way. A a parable is a narrative or saying of varying length designed to illustrate a truth, especially through comparison or simile. So to flush that out by looking at our text, Jesus begins by telling a narrative or a story. Okay, he's talking about a sower. He's talking about some seed. He's talking about various soil types. But he's not just talking about agriculture here, right? He's not just giving us a cute little story from some agrarian little culture. He's getting at something more. He's telling this narrative, telling this story, but it's so that we will kind of get to the truth behind it. When you get to his explanation there, as we just saw in verses 11 through 15, it's as if he kind of draws the curtains back. And all of a sudden, we get a, we get a sense, oh wait, there's way more going on here than just seeds and stuff like that. We see into deeper realities, the realities that mark the kingdom of God. So the sower is Jesus himself who goes about preaching the word. And the seed is the word of God, he says. And the soil types are not just, you know, things, the the ground out there. The soil types are me, my heart, you. What's happening in your heart as you hear the word coming from Christ this morning? That gets real all of a sudden. Not just cute little agricultural story anymore. He's after my heart in this. It might help you to think of it this way. Um, This is how I've explained parables before. Parables are essentially earthly windows into heavenly realities. So it's going to take earthly forms... But through those forms, you're going to see into something so much more, something heavenly, as it were. It's as if, as he starts to tell the story there, uh, beginning in verses 4, he's kind of setting the window frame, right? He's, he's building the frame so that when he gets to the explanation, he can kind of help us look through it to the view beyond. So earthly windows into heavenly Realities. Now, it should go without saying then that if all we see is the window and we don't see through it to the heavenly realities, we miss the point of the parable entirely. So I was thinking of perhaps a way to illustrate that for you. Uh, how many of you guys had to read um, Animal Farm back in high school, high school curriculum? You're reading Animal Farm by George Orwell. Um, it'd be like this to, if you read that, that book and you did not realize that in it, Orwell was taking stabs at, at Stalin and the Soviet Union and other things like that. And I don't think I'm so smart. I had to go back to Wikipedia to see what the heck it was all about. I couldn't remember, (laughs) but it'd be like, you didn't realize he was making some serious political statements and so you came away, you closed the book, you're like, now why did my teacher have me read that? Just a strange story about talking barnyard animals. How did that make the list of, of, of you know, the 20th century's most influential books? So you'd miss the point. 
If all you saw was the animals, they were there almost as a window frame. You were supposed to look through them to something more. If you don't see the something more, you miss the point. But when you see the something more, the point actually becomes even more pronounced, doesn't it? Because it has this illustration of these animals and other things in it. So, now, I want to try to answer then why. Why parables? Why, as the crowds are gathering around Jesus in greater and greater numbers, does he resort to speaking to them in parables? He actually gives us the answer there in verse 10. I'm just going to read it. But the disciples have now kind of pulled him aside and are engaged in private conversation with him concerning the parable he just shared. And Jesus says to them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that here's a purpose statement. Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Hold on a minute. If you notice, Jesus really gives us two reasons there. The first we like, the second we won't. The second's a little rougher. The first one is essentially this. He speaks in parables to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God to those who are following him, to his disciples. So the parables, actually, uh, for these people who are real close to Jesus, uh, the parables give them insight, wonderful insight into the kingdom of God. And if we think about our own experience with the parables for a moment, I mean, how much insight has the prodigal son the parable of the prodigal son given us into the heart of the father. I mean, does that not just minister to you every time you think about it? I've been off running. I've been eating the pods of pigs. He's not going to accept me. Wait a minute. Who's running down the road to me? My father is. I mean, that's insightful. That'll reveal the heart of the father to his kingdom citizens. That's amazing. What about the Good Samaritan and the importance of neighbor love? And we like to wiggle around, right? Who's my neighbor? Come on, let's put some rules on this. And and Jesus is saying, everyone made in the image of God is your neighbor. Love shows no discrimination. We learn a lot. So the parables reveal, they reveal insights into the kingdom for us but there is another reason for parables and this one is a bit more troubling just read it again for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand and you read that you go did i just hear jesus correctly or not Like if I'm taking a course on homiletics or biblical preaching or something, I'm thinking this is bad advice. I labor to make myself understandable. Make sure that I can get the message out. And he's saying, listen, I choose a medium for my message so that some people won't get it at all. Did I hear him right? He wants us to see the window, but not see through it. 
Just animals? No deeper meaning? To help us understand what Jesus means here, we need to go to the Old Testament text he references. If you noticed, there's a part in quotes in his response there, and he's essentially paraphrasing Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And this will help us out. This will help us out. In Isaiah 6, it's the, it's the commissioning of Isaiah. Um, Israel has been rejecting God's wisdom, uh, turning from God. That's the whole message of Isaiah 1 through 5. Just woe to you. I mean, you are just turning. And then God says, who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. He says, okay, this is going to be your ministry. Verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You said that? That doesn't sound very nice. In other words, Isaiah, Israel doesn't want another prophet. They're not interested in listening to me. They're going into exile. It's already past the point of no return. Israel doesn't want another prophet, but I'm giving them another one anyways. And your words as you speak are not going to serve to open their eyes and ears it's actually going to serve to close them further. It's going to be a sort of judgment on them for their resistance, for their stubborn, consistent rebellion against me. The more you hear the word of God without properly responding to it, the heavier your ears become and the less likely you are to ever hear it in the future. Did you hear that? That was so important. I got the mic. I just want to read it again. The more you hear the word of God without properly responding to it, the heavier your ears become and the less likely you are to ever truly hear it in the future. You slowly start to go numb. You slowly start to go like like those, you know, Charlie Brown cartoons with the teacher. I'm supposed to be learning, but all I hear is wah, wah, just nothing. And the, the, the nonsense gets louder in a sense, and you just get number. And the, the very things that were supposed to wake you up now put you to sleep. That's what you see happen with Israel. God forbid it should be happening in our own lives. So to bring it back to our discussion of parables, then hear the way one commentator sums it up. Parables both reveal and conceal truth. They reveal it to the genuine seeker who will take the trouble to dig beneath the surface and discover the meaning. But they conceal it from him who is content to simply listen to the story. Parables are a mine of information to those who are in earnest, but they are a judgment on the casual and the careless. They reveal 
and they conceal. So as Jesus looks out at these crowds following him now, this is why I said that detail was important. As he sees more and more people following him, he knows that more and more soil types are represented. He knows that in these larger crowds, there are a number of reasons, different reasons people have for being there. Some selfish, worldly gain. They just want to be a part of the movement and see some, you know, wowing miracle or something. Or see if they can get something done for themselves and then go on their merry way. But others, well, they're starting to hear God's voice in the sun. They're starting to awaken to something more. And they want to follow him wherever he would go. But you got all that and everything in between happening as these crowds are coming around him. And so, by speaking in parables, Jesus is able to This is what's amazing about it. Simultaneously weed out those who are just kind of in it for selfish gain and minister, on the other hand, to those who are genuinely wanting to follow. They get insight and wisdom and revelation. It's incredible. Only Jesus can do this sort of a thing. He's able to, at the same time, conceal truths from some while revealing truths to others. One group will see in the parables only animals. The window frame, a cute little story about, you know, agriculture or whatever. They will slowly lose interest because they don't see anything in it for them. And they'll turn away. Another group, another group see into these little stories nothing silly at all. They see the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They see deeper truths than anyone uh, sitting around could have imagined was being communicated. It's such a simple story. So we gather quite clearly from all of this that Jesus is not interested in gaining a following, but rather in gaining followers. Do you know what I mean by that? This is what's so awesome about the heart of our Lord. He's just not interested in the masses coming to him and and ooing and aahing and putting him up on a pedestal. And he's not interested in filling the pews if it means they're filled with people who don't know God and aren't interested in the things of God. You see that? He's interested not in a following, but in followers. Those who see in him the wisdom and the power of God and they want to follow him even if it costs them their life. Disciples, not an audience. That's what he wants. That's why he speaks in parables. Because it has this amazing way of causing division, confronting the hearts of the people and causing division in that way. Some in it for selfish gain, they go. Others in it for Christ, they press in and see wonder and glory. Now, Jesus will do this often in his ministry, throughout his whole ministry. Uh, So much so that I wonder why it's not perhaps part of our our missional strategy uh, uh, that they give you in seminary or something like that. It doesn't seem right. Everyone's talking about, how can you grow the church? And Jesus is like, listen, I say things that cause a lot of people to go. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. 
Because I'm not. I already said. I, let, let me pull back. Let me give you another example that I think might be helpful. Because he doesn't just do this with parables. He does it all the time with little enigmatic sayings. He does it even sometimes with miracles or things that he does. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the messianic secret, they call it, why he doesn't want people to tell that he's the Christ yet. Don't tell anyone. All this stuff. But one of the clearest examples is in John 6. Um, let me take you there quickly. Um, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, the beginning of that chapter, with just a couple loaves and a few fish. And as you can imagine, the people love him for it, right? I'm a man, he just filled my belly. We were hungry, now I'm not. I love this guy. I want to be tight with this guy. In fact, they're so stoked on him that what we read is they actually want to make him king. They said they were going to go and seize him and make him king. That's right there in John 6, but Jesus pulls away, he withdraws. No, you don't, because he knows. They want me to be king because I filled their belly. They're not interested in being saved from sin and eternal suffering and the real things I came to free them from. They're not interested in the Christ of the cross. They want the Christ with the crown, sure, but they don't get why I've come yet. So he withdraws. But they pursue him anyways, and they find him, and they come. And and, and, and So what is Jesus going to do now as the crowds are are surrounding him yet again. He's going to do something similar to the parables. He's going to do a little kingdom weeding. He's going to say something that's going to confront their hearts and those that are genuinely listening to him will follow and press in more and see even more glory. And Others will leave. This is what he says, verse 26 of John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then down in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. And people hearing this are going, are you kidding me? This guy is insane. We just wanted to see you do the bread thing again, man. My, my tummy's starting to grumble. I, Give me the bread of life. Yes, yes, yes. Your flesh. What the? What is he talking about? This guy's crazy. He's talking about cannibalism. Seriously. It's disgusting. And so we read, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After that, Jesus turns to the twelve and asks, are you planning to leave as well? But they got something entirely different in those words. Peter speaks up for the group and says, what? Listen, where will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. They're going to turn away. Fine. Not us. 
We see through the figurative language, the enigmatic language to something deeper. We have ears to hear. We hear the voice of the Father in the voice of the Son. They don't fully get it yet, but they know, man, he's giving his life for the salvation of the world. We rejoice in that. Other people scoff at it. That's disgusting. Do you see how it divides? Conceals from some, reveals to others. Jesus is not after a following. He wants followers. We need to ask where we're at with that. Just a few quick implications, though. This is one of the reasons why we're just not going to be afraid. At least I pray as long as I'm here. And God's mercy is upon us. We're not going to be afraid to say the hard word in this church. Believe me, am I afraid? Yes. To say some things that that contradict cultural orthodoxy. They have their own orthodoxy. You realize that, right? And we are heretics according to the culture. What we have to say about hell or the nature of man or homosexuality or whatever it is. And it's probably just going to get worse. And so here's the question. Are we going to kind of buckle to that? Are we, as a church, not going to be afraid to stand with God's word? If God says it, I'm going to stand with him. Even if I stand alone, right? And Jesus was not. In one sense, you're troubled when the people go. But in another sense, he's not because he stands with his father. You see what I'm saying? I want that to be the culture of this church. Not in a mean way. Not in a nasty, combative way. That's not the heart of Jesus at all. He wants them to awaken to the truth. But he's not about to to put a stamp of approval on their condemnation. On their hardness of heart. He's not going to do it. And so we're just going to preach the word here. We're just going to talk about what God says. And some people will love it and press in deeper. And others... Or maybe wanted something else from Christianity. I'm out of here. Maybe that's what God is in fact doing even in your life right now. Maybe, Maybe God is doing some things that are confronting your heart. Revealing uh, issues in your heart. Exposing stuff that you now have to kind of make a decision. And maybe it's not with parables or maybe it's not with enigmatic sayings about flesh and blood. Maybe it's with trials and unmet expectations, things that you prayed for that you thought he would answer, or that you thought that when you came to Christ he would do and he's not doing it and you're sitting here. Am I going to stick it with it in Jesus? Or with, with Jesus in this or not? Am I going to walk with him through the valley of the shadow or not? Does he have the words of eternal life or not? Because he will do this. He does this in love for you and for me to refine our hearts and help us say, yeah, he has the words of eternal life. Come what may, we're following him. I hope you can say that. Whatever he brings into your life. So now back in... Our text, I want to get to the second point, the gift of grace. Jesus uses the parable to confront the crowd and initiate this kind of division between those who are truly starting to hear God's word and those who aren't. 
And that's why when he comes out at the end of the parable there in verse 8, the second part, uh, he, he kind of he says that strange command. He says he just like, like kind of cries out and says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I tried to emphasize that when I read it because I think that's what he's saying is, I'm saying this parable. I know it's confronting the hearts of people here, and it's going to start to cause a division between those who have ears and those who don't. Those who not only hear with the ears of their head, those who are hearing with the ears of their heart. Those who are hearing the Father's voice in the voice of the Son. The whole point of the sermon has been to get now to this critical question. How do we get those kind of ears that actually hear? Because the parables just confront and initiate this division, but they don't give us the ears to hear. They expose where we're at, but they don't deal with the hardness of heart and the bad soil that is Nick Weber and the deaf ears that I have. They don't deal with that. How do I get those ears so that when I hear the word, I, I receive it deeply? I cling to it, like he says in the parables, and then I start to bear fruit, sweet, delightful fruit in my life. Well, again... The answer comes to us at the beginning of verse 10. I didn't emphasize it when we were there before. I'm going to emphasize it now. The answer comes with that little phrase. He speaks to his disciples. To you it has been given. Disciples, you hear, you understand the secrets of the kingdom that lay behind the parable. Because to you... It has been given. In other words, and I'm going to make the case for this now, you and I, if we have ears to hear, we have been given them as an act of God's sovereign grace. Let me make that case now as we close. The Old Testament background to that phrase, ears to hear. That's really interesting. It takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy 29.4. Deuteronomy 29.4. Here's where the people of Israel, they're about to enter the promised land. They've seen all sorts of stuff. They've been freed from from Egypt. They've seen God's miracles in the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land in Joshua, right? And they're standing there, and Moses is delivering this exhortation to them. And we read in verse 2, Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. And verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Your heart's still fallen. Your heart is still corrupt. Your heart is still desperately sick, incurable. 
And so all you did all the wilderness journey long was grumble. And you know what? If we follow Moses into chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, he says, you know what? That grumbling is not going to stop. And it's going to lead you all the way to exile. Moses says they're going to exile before they even enter the land. Do you realize that? (laughs) He says, but God will not abandon you in the nations that he will scatter you. He will gather you back. And this is what he will do. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. The Lord your God will, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In other words, that heart problem, it will subsist. It will continue until the Lord your God gets in and deals with that problem. And when he deals with the heart problem, he deals with the hearing and the seeing problem. He gives ears to hear. He gets inside. But it's not something that we can do. It's something that he's going to do in Christ The circumcision of the heart, Colossians 2.11, is what he does in Christ. Because he takes his son to the cross and he treats him like the unclean thing, like the, the spiritually dead and blind and deaf and mute. And he judges him for our sin. For my sin, for my rebellion, it's my rebellion. It's man's rebellion against God that's led to our hardness of heart. He owes me nothing. But he gives me everything. Because he crushed his son in my place. And all of that so that Jesus could come now to me and say, Sinner though I am, to you It has been given. This is what he does with Peter. You remember how Jesus responds to Peter's confession of him as the Christ and the Son of God? Jesus looks at him and he says, Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, He's the one who gave you ears to hear. Nobody gets that I am the Christ, the Son of God, unless God gives it to him. You see Jesus as the Son of God, as your hope, as the Messiah. God gave that to you. Blessed are you. Matthew sixteen seventeen. This is what he will do with the eleven when he appears to them after his crucifixion and resurrection. Luke 24, 45 to 46. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He opened their minds. You don't get, you don't get the cross From the scriptures, you don't see the glory, the wonder, the power of it unless God opens your eyes, unless God gives it to you. Is the cross your hope, your joy? Do you see in it the wisdom and power of God? God gave that to you. This is what Jesus does with Lydia. 
as Paul was speaking to her about Jesus by the river there in Philippi. Acts 16, 14, we read, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. When I'm preaching, (laughs) I don't want to just try to scold you into paying attention to me. That's not how it happens. It happens like it happened for Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the word because God was addressing her there. And she heard his voice through the voice of Paul. So if you hear the gospel and you believe it, your heart's been opened to it. God did that for you. God gave that to you. A bad soil cannot make itself good. An incurable heart cannot make itself well. A blind man cannot make himself see. A deaf man cannot make himself hear. God has to do that in an act of sovereign grace, and he has done it for all of us who are in Christ. In the upshot of all this, I had numerous qualities that should mark the Christian who's been mentored by this truth. I'll just give you one. The upshot of God moving on us in this way, giving us ears to hear the voice of the Father and the voice of the Son, the gospel, embrace it, trust it, take it in deeply as our hope and our life. The upshot, we will be a fruitful people. It's like Jesus would turn to his disciples. John 15 and say, you didn't choose me. I chose you. To what end, Jesus? So that you would bear fruit. I appointed you to bear fruit and your fruit will remain. Let me give you that. It's John 15, 16. You hear, you know the Father's love for you and the Son. You take it in deep and you start to Come back to sanity. You start to love the Lord your God with all your heart because your heart's been circumcised. You start to love your neighbor as yourself because your heart's been circumcised because things are different now. And you've been mentored by the sovereign God in his grace and his love for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful. We know that if we see anything in you worthy of praise and adoration, it's you who've opened our eyes. It's you who've opened our ears. Thank you that the parables to us are sweet minds full of treasure to be brought out and reveled in. That they're not closed doors, they're not closed windows. We see you. 
Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.